installment of the Startwell podcast. This time around, I'm in studio with Ran Goel. Goel? Goel. Goel. Yeah. Uh, the founder of Fresh City Farms, who is here to tell us about life on the range and other fun stuff. <laughs> Actually, not life on the range. But yeah, Fresh City Farms, I break it down for our audience. Like, what is Fresh City Farms? Let's start there. Uh, Fresh City is a company based here in the wonderful city of Toronto. We um, farm, so we have an urban farm, uh, apparently Canada's largest, uh, based in Downsview Park in the kind of northwestern corner of the city. Uh, and then we deliver what we grow and what other farmers grow uh, to households across the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also operate eight uh, retail stores uh, in central part of Toronto, big focus on organic, sustainable, seasonal, fresh food. Um, now, it's not just grocery stores that you guys run. No, it's um, we basically are here to create a better life through food. And so for us, the way we've chosen to interpret that is help the consumer um, get access to food that is meticulously sourced. Right. So, of course, means organic local produce um, in our early days, uh, but it's now evolved to sourdough bread made from organic flour, um, 100% grass-fed beef that we butcher in-house, prepared foods that are organic and local, uh, packaged in jars that you can return, so circular economy way of thinking. Um, So really connect all those kind of dots together because often... You know, we as consumers, you'll read about farm to table and organic and local, Mm -hmm. and it's often not that accessible for the average person. Yeah. It's interesting because that's definitely something I've heard from a few people is, um, I mean, in big cities, especially, uh, also there's an added price point to things being local, um, because, you know, gas no, it's got nothing to do with transport. It's funnily enough, transport globally is like cheap. It is. It is. If you, especially if you're bringing things by, bringing things in, in by ship. Yeah. It's not. Uh, people often talk about you know the foods coming in from ten thousand miles away, uh, and actually that's not a cost issue. That might be an environmental issue, but it doesn't cost all that much. Can I ask you a few things about groceries that come from afar? Please. Okay, avocados. I know it's a big hot topic. Avocados. People yeah. love them on toast. I love them on toast. Um, but I don't understand how an avocado can get to me from Mexico um, and be perfectly about to be ripe. Oh, I mean, the if you think about it, the, the, the trip from Mexico or Ecuador or wherever they would come from uh, isn't that far. It's like two, three, four days by truck. Um and as long as they're picked at the right time, timing's not an issue. And similarly with things like uh, bananas, um, uh, I mean, even you have apples and citrus and stuff coming from Africa and New Zealand. Yeah. And South Chile. Africa has really grown its exports. Huge, huge, yeah. huge, huge. So yeah, for a lot of, you know, outside of things like say uh, raspberries or blueberries that, um, you know, depending on where they come from, they have to be flown in, mm-hmm. uh, which we, Fresh City, shy away from. Um uh, you can get food here pretty quickly. I mean, the, the the cold supply chain is pretty well developed now in terms of distributors uh, and obviously trucking companies having you know uh, refrigerated fleets. Right. Um, so it's a, it's pretty seamless. I mean, the the problem often comes if there's uh, problems at the border or problems with weather that prevent you know traffic from flowing. Mm-hmm. Um, Customs officials stealing bananas and things <laughs> uh, all the time, all the time. I hear about the you know the nar- narcotics you know being seized, but they don't ever stop the bananas. Um, so I wonder about this. Okay, so like the the idea is that you know shipping is becoming e- easier or has become very easy, and refrigeration's there, and so the produce doesn't spoil on the way, and economies of scale enable people to provide you know summer fruits in winter and so on. Um, tell me a little bit more about. Fresh City Farms is beginning because um, I really find it interesting that you've gone from kind of, in my mind, farmers, urban farmers, uh, that may have been an experiment yeah. uh, with the aim of getting to where you are now, but to uh, to grocers. So that transition, 
Did it feel like it? Does it feel like it happened overnight? Was it pre-calculated? Um, some of it was, most of it wasn't. Meaning when we first started, my thinking was, okay, I want to create an urban farm. And I realized from the get-go, in order to make the economics work, uh, we need to deliver directly to the customer or, or sell directly to the customer because there's no way Loblaws is going to buy from you know the half-acre plot that we have at Dance View. Yeah, 37 potatoes. Yeah, exactly. At uh, like you know, 10 cents in the dollar for lucky. Um, so that was baked in, realizing it had to be to see, and that meant that our offering had to be wider than just what we grew, right? Because right. you know we only grow so many things at one time, but you want avocados and you want bananas that don't grow in Canada. So that part of it was always there that we would need to source uh, broader than just what we grew. Mm. Um, but the idea of doing full grocery was a bit of a, a realization that, hey, people would not buy from us consistently if we're not providing them with most of their fresh basket. And I'd say today, all of their fresh basket. Because otherwise, they'll just end up going to Loblaws or to Sobeys. To, Do to, people generally stock their fridge the same way every week? Uh, yeah. Most people right? are very consistent. Very consistent. I mean, we're, you know, 85% of our basket is fresh. So, you know, we're not the place you go to to get your five kilogram, you know, uh, sack of quinoa or something like that. Uh, yeah, that's it's, a lot of quinoa. That's a lot. Well, some people. Um, yeah, they love that quinoa. Uh, <laughs> um, so it's really fresh focused. It really is fresh focused. And that, that's, you know, a pretty high velocity item. So you'll have people, you know, one of the big debates that we had as a, as a group um, when we decided to go into retail because we were online for the first seven years. Oh, wow. So. That's and, interesting. Yeah. What years were those? Uh, 2011 to 2018. Oh. Yeah. So we got into retail fairly recently. Basically, we opened our first store in Ossington in September of 2018. And, uh, and your online sales, how did it go? Because it's kind of, you had what you had from the harvest. Yeah. So what did that mean for the way that you published the items for sale uh, and the way that people bought them? It, uh, going into retail, you mean? No, online. Even online, were people disappointed that they didn't get potatoes because they sold out that day? Was there an auction? How did you sell no, it? No, what, what we ended up doing is essentially, you know, having for most items, except for some seasonal things like uh, rhubarb or asparagus or garlic scapes, most of them is, is always available. And so that, for example, we would say, okay, we would sell all the potatoes out from our farm. And if, you know, ours ran out, we'd buy from another farm. Okay, And that's kind of you know, when I started the business, it was very romanticized. We have these uh, what are called CSA boxes, Community Shared Agriculture, where the main idea is you come to us at the beginning of the season, you give the farmer 500 bucks for a share. Right. Um, and then, you know, whatever we harvest is divided up between how many shares. So we have 50 people who've signed up for this and we you know, give you whatever is in, in being harvested. But quickly realized, you know, that's for like that 0.1% hardcore um, you know, ecologically minded consumer mm -hmm. for mere mortals like most of us, mm -hmm. that's not going to fly. Right. Uh, and you want some ability to customize. You don't want to prepay. You want your potatoes when you want your potatoes uh, mm -hmm. or your strawberries. Um, so we realized we need to be more, more flexible there. And that's the, you know, um, where ideals meet reality. Sometimes you have to figure out how to, you know, modulate between the two and kind of where we are is the, the result of that. It's super interesting, especially because the, you know, where you've gone with the retail, uh, at least in terms of the customer experience, is very, um, I would say it's, it's a very quality experience that people have when they go to Fresh City Farms. Uh, it doesn't feel, like I guess, let's, let's put the question on you. When you guys were kind of starting to go into the grocery business four years ago, three years ago? Three years ago, yeah. Um, how did you go about, setting up the first store was it a big process where you hired designers and interior you know um, branding people and do the full nine or was it a kind of a team-led effort to figure out the best approach to formalizing or, or physicalizing the experience um, mostly it was team-led so we definitely pulled in professionals here and there but you know the biggest question or two biggest question is where you know where would your first store be and we ended up deciding to say Let's put our store where uh, our first store where most of our customers are, where our most active subscribers are. And so our first store in Ossington was actually smack in the middle of our best postal code. Oh, wait. So Ossington Avenue was the first store. Yeah. 
Ah. Yeah, and that's our best um, our best kind of postal code in terms of penetration of how many people buy. Man, that was only like three years ago? It was just three years ago. Well, three, uh, what is it? 2019, uh, 2018. So yeah, three and a half now, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Time does move. We're getting old. Quite as old fast. as your daughter. Yeah, three and a half. <laughs> that is crazy to think because the brand has also grown in its equity in the downtown core, I feel like. When I mention Fresh City Farms to people, they know what it is. I think downtown, we have really good uh, brand recognition at this point. Uh, between the stores, you know, we've been around for about 10, 11 years now. Uh, we've had a couple pop-up things. We do a lot of consumer shows, a lot of advertising. So I think the in the downtown core, the recognition is pretty good. I think in the you know inner suburbs, outer suburbs, different story. Mm-hmm. But um, say south of uh, Eglinton or whatnot, uh, between the two rivers, uh, recognition is pretty good. Between the two rivers. Yeah. <laughs> that could be a show. <laughs> a wonderful show that airs at 2.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> Prime nap time. Between the two rivers. Wait, what rivers are you talking about, man? The Don and the uh, Humber. There you go. Yeah. That's where Toronto is. For me, it is, at least. So, uh, you know, for us, uh, we're always looking... How the city is divided up is really important for a company that does delivery. Right. So we often think of like, okay, so where, you know, where are we delivering seven days a week? Where do we do time slots? So, and uh, sometimes those topographical features are what divides key, key parts of the city. So you guys do your own delivery? We do. You own the fleet? Yeah. What does that look like and how has that part of the business changed in the last couple of years with the pandemic? Um, we deliver currently on a next day basis. Mm-hmm. And the benefit of that for the planet and for us is that we can plan ahead and yeah. you can create fairly dense routes. So each of our vans does like 50 or 60 deliveries uh, per run. Um, so it's vans that are refrigerated. Um, you know, driver comes in in the morning, picks up their orders and goes to deliver it. Um, and so the, the great thing about that, it c- gives us complete control over the cold chain. Uh, we know, you know, dropped off at the customer's door there's a photo taken we know we know where it's left and all mm-hmm, that stuff mm-hmm. um so that's huge uh during the pandemic it was a bit of a gong show honestly because what happened was demand spiked up um like immediately in, overnight in, or literally overnight um but the lucky thing for us is again my grandmother always used to say you know you better better lucky than wise uh the lucky thing for us is we'd always had a, a contactless delivery system meaning we would push uh, uh, leave the box um, or bag at somebody's door. Uh, we'd have some dry ice and ice in there so it can stay there for a few hours. I was like when on. I was a paper boy. A- exactly. But when but I was the- a paper boy, it was contactless delivery. You just chuck it at the front <laughs> door. <laughs> oh, you were one of those guys. Yeah, I, I was a paper guy that delivered right to the porch. We made like half a cent per delivery. It was it was tough times, man. You had oh, to move was, fast. That was tough. That was tough. Yeah, I think we, anyhow, that, I, I, I had a route, 126 houses. I won't forget it. Wow. Uh, um but but the 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 lucky thing for us was that was already built into our model because that's what enabled us to do deliveries efficiently, right? Right. Uh, we were able to you know, have to knock on the door and wait for somebody to answer, and they're not there, and then you call them. We always just dropped it off and moved on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so during the pandemic, we had a ton of experience doing that already, uh, and we ended up partnering with a few businesses that were effectively shuttered that had fleets to do deliveries. So wow. A uh, catering company did one. One was like a home improvement, um, a business that was like completely shuttered. Hmm. Um, so there was in the first two or three months there, that's how we kind of built. And then once numbers kind of regularized, we we did it all in-house again. Interesting. It's super interesting because so many businesses have been born in, uh, in quote unquote, logistics in the last couple of years. You know, um, I'm sure you guys have been approached by so many people saying, hey, hey, you should use us for your delivery. Has anyone tried to sell you their oh a ton services? a ton of yeah. people yeah and there's so many like we we get calls and it's like I don't have anything to deliver I <laughs> bring people to me right <laughs> you know like, deliver deliver customers yeah. here <laughs> it's so funny um, but owning your own supply chain you know to the end to the 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 last mile is really fascinating because there's a lot of logistics that you guys own you know what like for the businesses of our nature. Unless you're doing kind of Uber style delivery, like one order at a time from the store, uh, it's kind of it goes with the territory, to be honest. Because if you think of one of our deliveries, you have ambient items, you have refrigerated items, and you have frozen items. Right. So 
there's not much leeway there for things to go wrong, for timing to be off. Um, and often it's, you know, the time when we finish packing sometimes is a bit variable depending on when the cold pressed juice comes in or when the bread's ready and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's hard to get that all done unless you're, you have control over it. Um, I think if you're doing something like, you know, it's shelf stable and if they come three hours later or two hours before, you know, it doesn't matter as much. Uh, but for, that's where you see most online grocers who do online grocery as opposed to just delivery from the store uh, one by one. Uh, they, they take it in house. Yeah. It's funny because uh, a few episodes ago I was here uh, talking to John and Eric from Ascari mm -hmm. and uh, they were, you know, they did the same thing with their food delivery and their catering business. Now that's kind of grown is uh, since day one, they were like, we need to own the delivery pipeline. And some of the orders that we had early on for some meetings that we, we had in the pandemic here, which was very small meetings, uh, but uh, they came a bit late and they, you know, the, they were missing one package and stuff. And then they were like, oh, Joe, because <laughs> you know, it was just one guy with a van. And I don't know if they've kept that guy on because I see an Ascari branded van on Christie Street like every day. And it's just parked in the same place. So I'm like, you know, hey, go to work, do your thing. <laughs> you always at home. <laughs> uh, but they've grown since and they've become very, very efficient at like getting large orders now that we're handling here uh, on time. And and a big part of it, ha they've told me, has been that they can, they don't need to rely on someone else. They can correction curve if they have to uh, with that guy who's apparently on Christie. <laughs> maybe not working with them anymore. <laughs> parked his van outside. They're uh, getting free advertising. No, the logistics part of it is, uh, and, and that's some of the th one of the things I think we're missing in the conversation in the convenience economy is that there is a big price to be had for getting what you want when you want it within half an hour, an hour, which is kind of like you know where the market's going, mm -hmm. um, and it has an impact on a the kind of business that can execute on that. It has to be pretty damn big because you need to have you know like Uber kind of network to be able to tap into. And B, it has a huge um, planetary impact because suddenly you're doing one shot at a time. You're right. not Very running optimized routes like uh, like we are. Yeah, super inefficient. Yeah, there's packaging. There's like the cars. Well, there's so many pollution, so many inefficiencies. I mean, the way we do it um, in vast majority of scenarios decreases carbon emissions. So, for mm -hmm. example. If we're delivering in a typical inner suburban or suburban area and we're doing 60 drops, that's 60 trips that people haven't had to make back and forth with their 4,000 pound SUV to Costco or to Walmart. Uh, and, and so that's like a net savings. Um, but yeah, when you're just, you know, if somebody's in Vaughn and they're ordering from you know, their, their closest uh, Loblaws through Instacart, that's a lot of carbon. That's like somebody driving back and forth, mm -hmm. you know, just for, for your order. And who knows where the cardboard goes. That's a different matter. That's an Amazon stab. Yeah. <laughs> where does it go? They've improved it. At least it like flat packs very easily. It is a bit better now. Yeah. Better. yeah. It just falls apart. And you don't get as big of packages as you used to. Yeah. Although we still, you know, I don't know. Once in a while we, we have like paper towels, kitchen towels come to the house and it's like the only thing in a box this big. Oh, really? Yeah. It's very strange when we put my daughter in it and drag her around the house. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's been very interesting to see, we were talking earlier, right? About this idea of like trend spotting and, and you can't, you kind of almost can't spot trends in consumer demand in the last little while, uh, with the pandemic and uh, with lockdown orders in place in Ontario and stuff like that. But have you seen, um, a return to retail? Like are people kind of like pedestrian traffic walking into the shops a little bit more? Uh, for us, it's a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest. So our um, so we have eight stores, four of which are bakeries under the Mabel's brand. Mm -hmm. um, and those, you know, basically went back to normal and probably then some uh, back after the first lockdown ended. And they've been pretty consistent uh, there. Um, on the grocery side, it's been a bit of a mixed bag, partly because of the location of a couple of stores close to offices, which are not opened right now. So yeah. definitely less traffic from that. Um, and, and partly because of this phenomenon of people are generally uh, during the pandemic and so far as they went grocery shopping, not online, they went to bigger stores so they can do their whole shop at once. Okay. Uh, and that's kind of hurt us to a certain extent because ours is small format, like very fresh based. Um, so if you're looking for a full, full shop, you typically go, go elsewhere. Okay. Um, so net it's been, I'd say neutral, uh, but really depends on which, which store format. 
Um, okay, so the company grows from being an experimental kind of farm, urban farm, yeah, into a grocery. Along the way, picks up a butchery and bakery brands. Yeah, where do those come from? Were uh, those started by you guys? No, no, those you were both um, long-standing uh, brands in Toronto. So uh, Mabel's was started in two thousand seven. So who's Mabel? Mabel is the niece of the founder. Uh, uh-huh. One of the founders, yes. Who like cookies very much. Uh, like cookies and croissants and all the good stuff, yeah. Okay, so the, the, the idea, was, is that the foundation story? That it was like named after the, you said niece? The niece, yeah. The niece who loved these baked goods and so... Oh, that, I'm not sure if there was a connection with it she loved them or uh, not. Uh, so th- that I'm not sure about, but I know, I know that's the And that's who's the, the healthy butcher? Healthy Butcher was uh, founded by a husband-wife, uh, Mario and Tara, back in 2004, 2005, with an eye to, you know, they were kind of lapsed vegetarians looking for better-for-you meat or better-source meat. Um, happy cows. Happy cows uh, with, you know, no hormones and no, you know, uh, who'd spend time on grass rather than grain. Um, and they came up with the, the Healthy Butcher. So they, they opened their first store clear and those uh, close by here on Queen Street. Yeah, uh, I remember that back in the day. Still there. quite a while ago, right? Still there, yeah. Yeah. They're amongst all the weed shops. So you can uh, oh my God, get exactly. good meat and good weed in the same shop. Doesn't trip. make sense. All the weed shops on Queen Street. There's a lot. It's too many. It's time to consolidate. Honestly. Yeah. It's like they're all burning, excuse the pun, they're burning through their seed capital you know, and maybe they raise one, two years of lease money or something, but it makes no sense. Makes that sense. whole sector. It makes no sense. I mean, unless they're expecting a whole bunch of marijuana tourism, uh, which is obviously not going to happen anytime soon. Nope. Uh, uh, I don't see. Through VR yeah, on yeah. Meta, you know, Facebook Meta. Markle's, go weed shopping in Markle Toronto. save us. There you go. <laughs> They'll email you the weed. The, yeah, it's actually, it's very interesting as a, as a sojourn a little bit away from this, this, uh, groceries topic is on the farming tip, right? Um, we'll maybe talk about wheat again in a second, but what have you seen in the last few years with the availability of produce locally? Um, any trends in what people are growing um, to start with? Um, I guess maybe a step back for a second. Mm. You know, there's a lot of talk about local produce. I will say in the mainstream uh, grocery world, it's, I don't think it's made a real dent. Mm-hmm. Like it's been, you know, the highlight when it is local, but it's not like, I think as a percentage no of sales. seeking it out particularly? Is not that, that nobody's seeking it out, but I think the nature of the industry right now is not to actually change how they source. It's mm-hmm. just to kind of greenwash a bit and say, hey, look at this cool local item we have right. in Farmer John who grew it, yeah. but not necessarily to say, hey, let's invest in Canadian farming. Because mm-hmm. um, then the garlic wouldn't be $25 for three bulbs. And from China. Um, so so, so that's, I think, one part of it. The other part of it, I mean, certainly in our niche, you're seeing people uh, more appreciative of, uh, of local food. You know, they're learning about parts of, um, of the plant that they didn't use before, uh, plants that they didn't even eat before. Uh, and that's cool to see, but I'm very cognizant that, you know, we're a specialty grocer attracting a certain kind of customer and they're very interested in this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I will say there is a budding sense of, uh, terroir, um, emerging in Southern Ontario as people think about where their food comes from. And I think the food knowledge is becoming more and more, uh, textured. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, if you go to France and hear any French person talk about wax poetic about farming and food it's it's a very different ball game here right uh, yeah. but that's emerging i think that's emerging you're seeing you know people you know go to prince edward county and appreciate the yeah. the wineries and the you know where 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 we grow apples in this in, in this uh province and where we grow carrots in this province um so I, I do think you're seeing uh i don't know a much more educated uh consumer emerging right and then on the producer side though uh is there are you seeing I guess like, okay, so here's a question, right? We're also talking about this idea of kind of like, maybe we're hinting at it earlier, uh, urban flight and, you know, people looking for purpose in their lives and maybe, you know, the pandemic pushing people into kind of different career paths and so on. Uh, Is it plausible or likely that you'll see more people turn uh, to working the earth for a living? I don't think so. So is this a problem? with the immediate future of our um, locally sourced food in Ontario? Like are uh, the big question being, you know, is Joe the like 
65-year-old soon-to-retire farmer or 75-year-old because, you know, the people work long with when they're happy. Um, but are they soon, are they going to have any legacy plan? Are farms going to go become B&Bs? Well, this is a big issue, right? Is that uh, the average age of the of farmers in Ontario are like late 50s. And uh, I think the thing to keep in mind is, uh, you know, I'm a student of economics. I don't think we're going back in time. We're not going to go back in time to a place where uh, agriculture is less mechanized mm -hmm. or less irrigated or less you know, sophisticated, if you will. Uh, but I think what we should be striving for, and you're, you're seeing a bit of that, is um, thinking about our land as a non-renewable resource, as opposed to another place where we can pave over and build more cookie-cutter suburban homes mm -hmm. and really wide uh, boulevards. Um, so my hope certainly is that n it's not so much that more people will farm, but the land that we do farm, that we do have, we A, maintain it and keep it and preserve it, and B, that it's farmed sustainably. And that can mean a lot of things. It can mean um, more intensive production, like greenhouse production, for example, yep. which can use, if done right, use less water, much less pesticides, and be more more productive. It can mean uh, land that's used... Um, uh, you know, in a more appropriate way in terms of using cover crops so there isn't soil erosion, et cetera, no, and much less or no pesticides. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much that I think we're going to have this, at least my utopia, or at least realistic version of utopia, given where we are today, is not that there's going to be a whole bunch more homesteaders, mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's going to be a fringe phenomenon, and when I welcome, don't get me wrong, but I don't think it's going to be this, you know, where 20% of us are going to be feeding ourselves from in, yeah. in, in the near term. It's interesting with farmers retiring out, there is that question, right? Of all these wonderful producing farms and whether they'll get, you know, amalgamated by private equity backed, you know, farming behemoths yeah, or grow other products like weed. That seems to be like we're farming too much weed anyway <laughs> and it's yeah. not making yeah. anyone rich. So I don't know if that's the answer, um, but it would be sad if, if fields go to uh, waste Oh, for in sure. In the next five, 10 years. For sure. For sure. I mean, I, I will say there's probably, uh, if you look at Southern Ontario, uh, people are always surprised to hear this, but we have some of the best land in the world in terms of farmland. Like yeah. fertile. Fertile, uh, right climate, you know, enough water, like all the stuff that makes a piece of land very commercially viable as a farm. Um, but we don't necessarily think of it as this resource that it really is that mm -hmm. this thing because once you pave it over you pave it over it's done right um so so i think it would what we're missing in ontario is really a land use policy agricultural land use policy that's that's effective the green belt offers a bit of that in the sense that you cannot develop in the green belt or within certain restri restrictions um but we don't see it nearly enough as a national treasure that it is yeah canada's a bit weird man it's weird for so many reasons. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I come from a very, I'm from, I'm from Israel, a very small country. Um, so, you know, the sense of how you know, every piece of land there is obviously very contested. Uh, but here, you know, if you drive, but people forget, I think, if you drive, say, three or four hours out of Toronto in any direction, yeah, that's half of the best farmland in Canada. That's it. So the re this rest of this huge country, it's great, but it's not very farmable. Yeah, it's wheat. Not, yeah. So sweet. Uh, and even, but even that is, is it not, you know, it's only certain areas. Like most of Canada shitty cannot wheat. be farmed. <laughs> it's either wheat or shitty wheat. Why? why? <laughs> that wheat, wheat tastes wheat. like shit. I don't want to eat that. Wheat or wheat. That's all we got. Yeah. Wheat or wheat. Uh, oh my God. And so, then the mountains. So we got to get our act together on land. That's for sure. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, it's very interesting. And the idea of stewardship you know, uh, promoting stewardship of the land amongst urban dwellers, which is like how, what percentage, massive per, over, per, you know, majority percentage of Canadians uh, are urban dwellers, right? And, or suburban dwellers, as you were alluding to. So I think like promoting um, young Canadians to have experiences with the land uh, and promote this idea of kind of stewardship and taking interest uh, is difficult. Yeah. It's not something that, is uh, done by the private sector alone, for sure. No. And no. I, I have no idea how the education systems in the provinces deal with that. You know, taking the kids out to a farm, do they do that? Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, in Quebec, if you're a farmer, 
the government provides funding for therapy for farmers, like mental health therapy, free or subsidized. Um, if you're trying to start a farm, they're mm-hmm. going to subsidize building out your irrigation system and your greenhouses. Wow, cetera. they'll get you started. They'll get you started. That's uh, amazing. We don't have that in Ontario. Not, nothing For anything. close to that. Wow. Nothing even close to that. And province to province agricultural output? Uh, I don't know how you would measure that as a per capita production volume across the board of all products or something. Like, how do they compare? Well, Quebec has become a bit of a, of a powerhouse now. And really? bo- both, I mean, agricultural products um, in terms of the raw materials, but also even more importantly in processed as well. Like they're, they're building champions in, in dairy and cheese, uh, greenhouse technology. Um, so Quebec has always been, uh, you know, m- much more at the forefront of industrial policy than, than we have in Ontario, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Obviously, there's been some, some big failures, mm-hmm. um, uh, like SNC and uh, Bombardier to a certain extent. Uh, but yes. there's also been big successes that people don't talk about. It's smaller, but, but big successes as well. Uh, and I think there are, perspective and agriculture to your point has more of a stewardship lens on it than than we think here in Ontario. Yeah, it's also interesting because I think um you know Quebecers with a with a long-standing history of being Quebecers um which a lot of native Quebecers are, you know, they have roots going back maybe not to the 1600s but uh, maybe 100 200 years longer than than Ontarians it seems like. Yeah. Um, that might be a thing, you know, you have your kind of heritage village or place in the, in the province where you're from. And so you remember that culturally, if not through your father or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So that's an interesting thing. Um, but I do see hope perhaps in trends, like you mentioned, like Prince Edward County becoming a uh, weekend getaway for, uh, uh, for Torontonians. It's so funny how that happened, by the way, in the last few years, you know, yeah. and it comes up every day. I think, when was it? On Monday, I was asking someone, I saw them in the office and I said, hey, how was your weekend? And he said, oh, it's great. You know, a friend of mine just bought a house in Prince Edward County. It has eight bedrooms. Wow. We were all there just drinking all weekend. <laughs> drinking cider, cider. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nothing from the land around the house. <laughs> I was so surprised. No, I wasn't surprised because I know this is happening now, right? Because it's it's like an inkling little... It's a not a great business, but I've always wanted to um, do a couple things. I've always wanted to own a hotel, or at least you know, at least one hotel. And I've always wanted to uh, own and operate a vineyard. Oh, interesting! Yeah, huh. and uh, and do the two together. So uh, it's a bit fun for me once in a while to look at what's available in the in the county. Right. And uh, for years, I've I've made that one of my kind of uh, realtor.ca, my MLS, you know, Searches. weekend crushes, right? right. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I gave up on Toronto after I realized we can never afford to leave our house and buy a different house because it's just, you know, the property prices are crazy. But so I started looking more at, at this stuff. And uh, a lot of people seem to have had a, a hard go. I mean, it's difficult to grow wine. Maybe other produce. Oh, here. yeah. That's the, you, so don't, do, you don't do that as a business. I mean, maybe, maybe the vines? hotel part you do as a business, yeah. but not the vineyard. But burying vines? The whole production technique here, it's like, it's crazy. And I hate saying this, and I'm not insulting, you know, local producers across the board, but you have so many people growing grapes with all these arduous uh, methods to keep them alive. And then they produce just swill. It's not good. It's terrible. A lot of it is terrible. Like in Niagara, a lot of the wine in Niagara and still to this day is mixed with foreign imported grapes. Yeah. 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 And then you kind of wonder, why do you do it? Like, well, I don't understand. Well, it depends which, ca- so, I mean, we, so we, we just started selling uh, wine uh, in the last few months um, when, when the pandemic allowed that from a regulatory perspective. So, um, and we have a sommelier on, uh, on staff now as well. So, I mean, there's some great whites in Ontario uh, right. from Prince Edward County and Niagara and a couple of choice reds as well. Uh, but Pinots, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But, but it is, it's the climate here is its own climate. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and frankly, I mean, that's kind of part of the whole terroir discussion, right? There is certain, even within Ontario, certain areas that are better for certain crops than others. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think in and of itself a realization, right? That, uh, yeah, we were not going to grow a good, um, pineapple. <laughs> we can't definitely not grow a pineapple. <laughs> Those coconuts won't grow. <laughs> uh, so it's realizing that, yeah, you can't 
do everything everywhere, right? And uh, some part, and that's a, there's a beauty to that, right? There there's is. a beauty to realizing, hey, these apples from Durham are phenomenal because of the of the climate there, but you know, maybe a cab salve, not so much. Uh, I think it's awesome, man. This idea of kind of like a return to in real life being, you know, knowing, knowing what's actually happening around you. Yeah. Yeah. I have this whole thing of like, even, you know, um, I'm a big student of, of kind of, uh, built environments, uh, you know, and the, the idea of, and obviously interior design and architecture in the business that I'm in, but, looking at how people uh, who have always grown up in cities have superimposed subconsciously perhaps uh, uh, a kind of aesthetics of nature onto the built environment around them, right? Where the tall buildings are the trees and so on. And it kind of like feeds this uh, reprogrammed identity uh, that um, that kind of uh, packages everything ready for commercial consumption and takes people away from their relationship to the things that they're consuming and uh, and removes the possibility of even that connection being there you know yeah yeah a lot of a lot of people you know i've talked to who become vegetarian vegan whatever and have this meat awakening uh, often cases maybe they don't even have uh, they don't have the uh, option to have grass fed beautiful happy cows so they realize the horrors of the mass industrial complex producing um, cut packaged portion meats for them and they don't want to be part of it. But can you imagine that realization when you have no alternative? It's got to be a little heart-wrenching. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, listen, there's a lot of, I mean, one of the things that came up, I think, for us in a very big way during the pandemic um, is uh, food insecurity. And not that it's, you know, it predates the pandemic easily, but the pandemic made it worse in many cases. Um, And you realize this huge kind of, Gulf, and you know the thing I always go back to is, you know, come shop at Fresh City. I think we provide way, way better sourced food for your health and the planet than anywhere else. Go to your farmers market, grow your own food. But at the end of the day, you got to make the transition from being uh, a consumer to being a citizen, because this stuff is like it's 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 macro. It's not mm-hmm. a self righteous affair that oh yeah, I'm eating organic and I'm eating local, so you know, I'm doing my bit. Exactly. That, that's that's like that's the I wouldn't say the tip of the iceberg, but a, a small part of what the change ultimately needs to be. The difficult thing in 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 Canada, I find, is uh, and of course it's elsewhere. But my lens, being someone who's kind of like grown up between East Africa, done business in India, Canada, um, we're a nation of recyclers. I, I tell people. I don't mean that we're entirely pathetic, you know, like kind of um, apathetic, you know, people, but we do have a tendency to what to do good and choose easy ways to do good and yeah. then feel better about ourselves for it. Yeah. Because we also are all of the same milieu, it feels like, like predominantly middle class, you know, uh, with shelter and so on, uh, majoritively in Canada. There's definitely people on the fridges, the 1% and the uh, the unfortunate people who don't have shelter and so on. But what I see, you know, I, I, this is a great paradox, is we're a nation of recyclers and we do really a great job of separating different things to put in different bins. And the, one of the biggest breaking stories, of course, on the CBC, you know, and other national outlets and, and smaller regional outlets in the news before the pandemic hit, literally, I believe it was about a month before the pandemic hit, was, uh, was, was how all of that stuff just mostly goes to the Philippines and gets burned. You know, yeah. or wherever, and just gets put in the ground or burned. And it was like 80% of all Canadian waste is like, you know, it's just the same as putting it in the trash bin. Yeah, exactly. Sold down to Mexico. Uh, and it's this great paradox, right? Like everyone likes kind of feeling good about doing the right thing. But if the system that gives them access to doing the right thing is fallible, uh, they will still put faith in the system and want to hold the, the owners of the, the system's architecture uh, accountable or its uh, key holders and say, you know, well, I did my bit and you didn't do your bit. And it's all about, well, everyone doing their bit. But the thing is, it's a little bit more organic, right? Yeah, yeah. And people need to kind of take uh, a little bit more responsibility for understanding things and learning things. And that's where also this urban farming thing is fascinating to me because um, I think you give people the experience through urban farming to connect with the earth 
in ways that until they do for the first time, they might never have had the opportunity their whole lives, right? I mean, that uh, you know, if I think of urban farming, what it means to me, and, and this is always the case, by the way, from day one, was I see it as this like platform to generate eureka moments, to get people thinking about what they're eating and what they're consuming and their life. Because mm. uh, ultimately, I think that's what everything we're talking about is, you know, it sounds nebulous, but it's it's about consciousness and it's about how we view the act of consumption mm-hmm. and how we view what is a worthy life to live. Uh, because, yeah, if you're, if you're looking for all these placebos like recycling or like, you know, uh, you know, eco this packaging and, you know, uh, slightly better source this, uh, um, somebody's going to market that to you, right? Mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. And it might be the you know, your, your municipality or it might be corporations who are going re- sure. you know, to market this Look at you. all those labels on fish, right? I, exactly, right? Um, but I, I think if we just simplify our lives, um, at least insofar as eating food, you know, eat more real food, eat a bit more locally, don't be fanatical about it, uh, eat less meat, mm-hmm. um, eat less processed meat, food. Uh, it's all pretty simple, but I think the... You need to like understand like the consciousness part of it, like where you have to you have to feel it rather than think it at mm-hmm. a certain level, uh, and that to me is what the promise of urban farming, uh, where where it can help. It's not that we're going to suddenly grow ten percent of our food, mm-hmm. and it's not because we save X amount of carbon di- emissions from not schlepping it from you know out of town or from Mexico. Yeah, uh, it's that it really gets people thinking. They're like, oh yeah, this is where my food comes from. This is how every pepper starts and. This is what it means to to work the land and to you know uh, harvest it, and this is how great it tastes and how good it smells. Um, just get people thinking about that. It's just simplifying. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's, a, it's so cool. Like for the first, I I feel shameful saying this, right? We've had a house for you know before that I was in an apartment with no land around me, um, but I think it's been six years I've had this house. And, you know, our back garden has always been a nightmare for some reason. We, unfortunately, the house was pre-built when we bought it. I mean, which is good because we didn't have to deal with a century home falling apart. But um, they didn't care about the, the gardening side of it. Right. You know, they just were focused on the house and dumping it on someone. And that we got it dumped on us in a way. Uh, and the backyard was literally like pebbles and rocks and like it was just the worst earth that you can find <laughs> i don't know where they got it from they probably dug out the back of the house and just like left all that debris after yeah. yeah and you know it costs so much and it's such an effort to redo all of that so it's taken a number of years of me doing hard work uh to clean it up and then get it leveled and then put some nice new turf on and in the process you know i put a planter a couple of years ago around the the perimeter of the garden put some new topsoil and everything this year and for the first time this year planted some tomatoes and some herbs and some um, eggplants and then a few leafy greens that didn't taste that great. It was a sukuma, sukuma wiki. Oh, nice. Yeah. So in Kenya, in Swahili, we call it sukuma wiki, but that's, what is that called? Collard greens? Okay. Collard greens. Yeah, yeah. So in Kenya, that's called, that's the number one staple or one of, uh, there's a dish in Kenya that everyone has, which is um, ugali and sukuma wiki. So ugali is your kind of starchy uh, mass, which is cornmeal. Right. And then the sukuma is like really tough collard greens, right? They cook it like crazy with some cilantro and some onions and garlic, a little bit of cumin, a little bit of turmeric, uh, you know, salt, pepper to taste, and some chilies. And it's sauteed, and then you eat the two together. And that's like the number one meal that people have all the time. Oh, wow. All the time. Huh. And maybe you put meat if you're, it's a celebrity a celebratory moment and you've killed a goat you barbecue it and they call it nyamachoma and you eat it with your gali and sukuma wiki oh wow anyway so i grew some sukuma wiki it is a kenya throwback kenya moment and um it was it was fascinating because not so much for me the eureka moment of that was not so much to go through the process part of it was and and feel the shame of not having done it all the time every summer because it's so easy yeah things just grow like they just grow, right? Yeah, yeah. And everyone's very surprised by this. <laughs> what was really interesting, the Eureka moment for me was not that though, was seeing other people's faces when they came over and saw, and we were encouraging them to like pick a tomato. I'm like, hey, choose a tomato, just eat it. Like, what do you mean eat a tomato? 
Well, should we make a salad? No, just eat a tomato. Choose a little tiny one. Try it. And then my daughter is like showing them the little baby tomatoes and say, take this one, take this one. Oh, that's awesome. And people are surprised. They, firstly, they feel like empowered to be able to eat something. Secondly, they don't know if it's safe because it's like in a backyard. Yeah. And it's like there is so much um, rethinking and and, and uh, reformatting going on in people's brains, which is just amazing. We yeah. do need that, a lot more of that for sure. I think so. How are restaurants relating to that? Uh I think restaurants are in a tough place, to be honest with you. Uh, I mean, obviously, pandemic. Um, but the reality of it is the average consumer, uh, it, it's tough to get that message across, I think, in a restaurant setting. Mm. So you look at the vast majority of restaurants, 99.9% or whatever, it's completely conventional supply chain. Right. Uh, you're not seeing, you know, you have your odd farm-to-table restaurant maybe one or two ingredients at some restaurants that are, you know, directly from local farms. Uh, but for the most chart, most part, it's very, very, it's actually, I find it intriguing from a marketing economics perspective that uh, the penetration you're seeing for say local or organic uh, at the grocery store, mm -hmm. it's, it's fairly low, but it's there. It's like there's a market uh, and there's an offering uh, and restaurants, very, very small. Like you, you really need to dig if you are looking to have, uh, a meal at a restaurant that is locally organically sourced or either or mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's a shame it'd be kind of cool also with real estate being the price that it is it's a difficult racket in general for restaurateurs to like yeah. do their deals so they have to find margin wherever they can get it oh yeah no no blame honestly like yeah. uh, it is what it is uh the, the, the ultimately i think it's just hard to translate that to the customer and to be frank it's i think ultimately easier for uh it's easier to do a, like you know a bit of tokenism here and there and say you know these are organic eggs or farm fresh eggs mm -hmm. but the rest of the menu is just conventional uh because that's enough for most people most people are going to dig much deeper yeah, than that branding uh whereas i think when you're shopping yourself um especially you know there's moments of transformation for people often we find you know people start shopping with us uh, when they're thinking of getting pregnant or having kids and they're thinking okay what am I putting in my body mm, or when um, you know uh, God forbid somebody's got cancer or they're starting to think okay hey why you know how, how does why I eat yeah, damn I you eat? Cheetos you gave me cancer <laughs> so, something like that uh, so that it's the, the correlation it's much easier to see that you're like hey that tomato, that one had pesticides on it. That one didn't. I should maybe choose that one. Uh, yeah. Whereas in a restaurant, I think that's kind of lost in the overall experience. For sure. Yeah, and a restaurant is typically selling atmosphere, you know? Exactly. More than the food per se. Yeah, it's fascinating, uh, especially because of everything being up for grabs right now with the pandemic, you know, in that hospitality side of food. Um, I've definitely just anecdotally through people that I know uh, and even some of our members and customers at Startwell have been talking a lot about this idea of kind of a return to cooking, right? And I'm like, okay, Michael Pollan, guys, you know, <laughs> everyone, you know, grow your own psychedelics in the backyard <laughs> and then eat the non-psychedelic mushrooms with some butter from your friend's cow. Um, but it hasn't happened. Like people are not, that people might be cooking more. My friends and people that I know are not necessarily a representative segment of society, uh, but there are representatives, funnily enough, segment of, you know, professionals that are all doctors and lawyers and stuff. And I'm like, I don't know enough entrepreneurs to talk to at dinner time. You know, it's crazy. Anyway, that's a side note. That's a brain fart. <laughs> but going to other people's houses who essentially have nine to five lives uh, and they are very regular with their grocery shopping and their fridge is typically always the same, you know, maybe the odd dragon fruit to appease a, whimsical child's right. interest in the in the in the store uh and then a quick google search as to like how to cut dragon fruit you know and then it's on the table but the, the experimentation in cooking i guess is what i'm getting at uh i haven't seen you know no and, no no and, and the way i look at it is like the i love my house and it could be any house that i live in right but when i go home i'm like i'm gonna do stuff here right like i cook like crazy and i make all sorts of stuff um, then the kitchen is like the greatest thing in the world because you get to like open things and smell things and taste things and throw them together and experiment and there's fire, there's fire, <laughs> there's wine and there's fire. It's fun, you know? Although it is. And I think, yeah, there, 
I think hopefully we've regained a bit of that. But um, you know, the other part of it, it's you know, it's interesting. I, I'm the same as you. I, I love cooking. You know, my my uh, I love roping the kids into it and making them peel garlic and stuff like that. And they you know they won't admit it, but they have a great time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, it is there's a privilege as well to that, right? A privilege in terms of time, ingredients, knowledge infrastructure you know obviously mm-hmm. you need to have a certain number of things to be able to to cook um so you know i'm i'm i'm, cogn- I'm cognizant of that right there's there's serious uh, time poverty and uh you know w- one of the reasons why uh people don't cook is it's hard to keep uh for for people who are trying to uh, live on a budget uh fresh food goes badly bad obviously and right? that's what ultimately we often cook with um so for them it's often makes easier to get the TV dinner or to get takeout or something like that that they can consume right away rather than something that might go bad in the fridge if they don't get to it or something like that. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, that's what the, at least why at least studies are showing that a yeah. lot of like, uh, I get it. I get it. But I think that's a half thought, you know, for those people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if they push themselves for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, okay. This is on the meta, Again, food education is really problematic. Like, I think this is like, should be a number one thing in school systems is like getting, like cooking should be part of the curriculum. Yes, I agree. Every child should know how to cook for themselves. How do you not know how to nourish yourself? You know, like they're like, I would say that about six, seven out of 10 people that I meet don't cook. It's interesting. It's, it actually speaks to what is a society we want to privilege and what we want to prioritize. So you say we should learn how to cook. Should we learn how to sew? Should we learn how to woodwork? Mm. Should we learn how to any number of things that, you know, we can theoretically do ourselves, but that we typically outsource. Uh, and I would argue, and I think it sounds like you agree that their food is different than some of these other things. Like, I don't know if my kid needs to know how to knit a scarf, but they should know how to cook mm-hmm. because that goes into their body and they should have some autonomy over how they make their food and not just rely on somebody else to be making it. Yeah. And, and defining taste um, around what you can do for yourself will empower your ability to uh, buy the best. Yeah, exactly. You know, wherever you go and have a good time eating as well. I'm with you, brother. Awesome. <laughs> well, it was wicked talking neblessly, as you would say, <laughs> about so many things. Yeah. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been yeah. awesome. Absolutely a pleasure.